Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right. So this week, John has picked a story for us. John, why don't you tell us what you picked? I picked A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. We haven't done any Flannery O'Connor yet. and I, It's hard to believe. So I thought I'd bring that in. Perfect. They drove off again into the hot afternoon. The grandmother took catnaps and woke up every few minutes with her own snoring. Outside of Tombsboro, she woke up and recalled an old plantation that she had visited in this neighborhood once when she was a young lady. She said the house had six white columns across the front and that there was an avenue of oaks leading up to it and two little wooden trellis arbors on either side in front where you sat down with your suitor after a stroll in the garden. She recalled exactly which road to turn off to get to it. She knew that Bailey would not be willing to lose any time looking at an old house, but the more she talked about it, the more she wanted to see it once again and find out if the little twin arbors were still standing. There was a secret panel in this house, she said craftily, not telling the truth but wishing that she were, and the story went that all the family silver was hidden in it when Sherman came through, but it was never found. Hey, John Wesley said, let's go see it. We'll find it. We'll poke all the woodwork and find it. Who lives there? Where do you turn off at? Hey, Pop, can't we turn off there? We never have seen a house with a secret panel, June Star shrieked. Let's go to the house with the secret panel. Hey, Pop, can't we go see the house with the secret panel? It's not far from here, I know, the grandmother said. It wouldn't take over 20 minutes. Bailey was looking straight ahead. His jaw was as rigid as a horseshoe. No, he said. The children began to yell and scream that they wanted to see the house with the secret panel. John Wesley kicked the back of the front seat and June Starr hung over her mother's shoulder and whined desperately into her ear that they never had any fun even on their vacation, that they could never do what they wanted to do. The baby began to scream and John Wesley kicked the back of the seat so hard that his father could feel the blows in his kidney. All right, he shouted and drew the car to a stop at the side of the road. Will you all shut up? Will you all just shut up for one second? If you don't shut up, we won't go anywhere. It would be very educational for them, the grandmother murmured. All right, Bailey said, but get this. This is the only time we're going to stop for anything like this. This is the one and only time. The dirt road that you have to turn down is about a mile back, the grandmother directed. I marked it when we passed. A dirt road, Bailey groaned. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so you picked the story because we haven't done Flannery O'Connor, but why did you pick this piece of her work? I think this feels like the most memorable of all the stuff of hers I've read. Um, and, and I think it's one of the most popular is in um, anthologies and stuff all over the place. So so you, you thought we had something else to add? <laughs> yes, I figured, you know, no one's heard from us on this story yet. <laughs> yeah. There's so much out there. <laughs> Well, when you suggested it, I think the reason I was confused is just because this is the story that like comes to mind. I think this is like, I'm not like nearly as well read as everyone else, but like Flannery O'Connor, I've obviously read and this story I've obviously read. And so it just feels like you said, like a, a pretty obvious pick. What do you like about it? I like the way it ends. It's unexpected. <laughs> and I know everyone's read it, so it doesn't feel unexpected anymore. But as far as a short story goes, you know, it's unexpected that just everyone dies and uh, the bad guy wins. Or that seems to be quite the uh, quite the way to write a story. Yeah, but to that point, I mean, what she does so well is all the foreshadowing, right? I mean, we start the story off by telling the reader that there's a killer on the loose that the grandma is worried about. And why would you start it that way if it wasn't going to end that way? So like the whole time 
you have this anticipation of that moment. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, a situation where you would foreshadow a confrontation and that most of the story would be we know that confrontation is coming. How are they going to get out of it? How are they going to live? How are they going to escape? But this is just, nope, get to the end. They face off against the misfit, which is the bad guy of the story, and he he gets to kill them all. Yeah, I don't know. I read a lot of murder stuff, though. <laughs> and and I watch a lot of, like, you know, true crime stuff. And as a consumer of that kind of material, you know, based on the fact that you're about to watch true crime or read a murder mystery book, that the murderer gets away with shit probably for a long time and that you're going to hear about it. And that's, like, the inevitable conclusion because that's the point of the genre. But I think she still pulls off something, like, it still felt, like, almost inevitable in a sense that you would enter reduce this only to have it like play out fully i think otherwise you would have the family go on a vacation and the serial killer come out of nowhere right yeah like maybe they didn't even know he was on the loose i don't know there's something about like hearing about it and just like waiting for it to happen and like yeah you don't expect them all to get like slaughtered that easily but um it did seem like they were gonna run into him and it was not gonna end well yeah well, I mean, one of the things about this story is it feels like a Greek tragedy in that she's trying to avoid him. Like the first thing she says is, we don't want to go to Florida. I want to go to Tennessee. And the misfits going to Florida. So maybe we should avoid going to Florida. Let's go to Tennessee instead. And it happens to line up with what she wants to do anyway. And so she uses his, um, him as an excuse. But then in trying to avoid him, they inevitably confront him. It's like Oedipus, you know, he's trying to avoid meeting his father and his mother. And by trying to do so, he winds up killing them and marrying them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I wasn't sure when you started reading that section where it was going to end, but I thought for a second that um, we were maybe going to hear the bit in the story where the grandma realizes that she's mistaken the state where the house was. Oh, yes. And that, to me, based on what I've said about feeling that the inevitable climax was confronting the serial killer, that to me felt like the real scary part because that was the point in the story when you realized how they were going to run into him. Like, she made a mistake. And she's more afraid of the mistake and we're in her head for the mistake. But when she confronts the misfit, I don't think we're like so close in her head at that point. It says something at one point where she's like, she recognized him. She just didn't know when. But like when she realizes it, it's a line of dialogue that everybody gets to read for the first time together. So like at the moment she realizes that she doesn't have this like fear grip her and we're not in her head, like listening to her kind of like shrivel away from this realization. She blurts it out. And so everybody becomes privy to it all at once versus like this secret that she kept to herself and it was like this pit in her stomach she's like oh shit we're in the wrong state and she doesn't tell anyone and that's that to me felt like the fatal flaw not like the dad giving in not the kids really pushing for it not even that she lied about the trap door but that she didn't tell them when she fucked up but it was pretty immediate like after that because that's when the cat jumped out and then the car flipped over into the ditch yeah but yeah yeah it was really quick i'm not saying maybe she could made a choice yeah well if we follow through the greek you know the way that plays out you don't get much of a choice yeah. <laughs> but what because of who she is the ending it comes about because this whole entire story she's trying to direct traffic she's like trying to weasel what she wants out of the situation you know she gets them to go to tennessee instead of florida she gets them to turn down this dirt road like that the reason i read that section is because it is showing her manipulation she gets the kids riled up like she wants to go look at these arbors and she's like I'm going to make this, make the kids fight for this. 
Yeah. And they do. They wake up and they're like, yeah, we want to go see it. And she's doing that the whole way through, just manipulating everybody. And then all that manipulation just drives her straight to the uh, misfit. Yeah. To your point about her being manipulative, you're right. Like she's doing some subtle things and like kind of playing up her role in the family to get all of this accomplished without it being obvious that she's the one like pulling all the strings, which is like a weird thing. I feel like when I want to be in charge, I want people to also know that I'm in charge. (laughs) And she's over here like, I want them to think it was their idea. Aren't I wise? It's like, uh." it's almost like if she were to have survived this and been like the sole survivor, I could see her having an excuse for why this wasn't her fault because she wasn't the one steering the car. She didn't crash. Or like, you know, she didn't do this thing that led them here and she wanted to go to Tennessee and I don't know. I could feel her like, it's almost like she doesn't want full responsibility or something. There's something about this grandma character that um, that we're supposed to take away. <laughs> yeah, and she tries to play the same tricks with the misfit, you know, tries to appeal to him and very and tries all kinds of tactics at the end. Like, here's all the reasons, ways of weaseling out of getting killed. Right. And then they just don't work. <laughs> None of it works on him. No. Yeah, I don't know what I would do if I was begging for my life, but she does some things that are like really kind of... She tries like five tactics in a span of like the last five minutes of her life, you know? She's like, I know you're a good man. I want to pray for you. You would never do that. It's obviously desperate. You can't blame her, but you can also see why this misfit has probably heard that a thousand times, doesn't care. I don't know. There's something weird about the misfit too. I don't think I got any like sort of motivation from him. I mean, like his name is misfit. Like maybe his whole like spree is just like revenge for somehow being the outcast, but he's just slaughtering people and then just driving away. Doesn't really talk about like, if he like takes their money or anything. The only motivation that really comes up out of that last scene is he needs a new shirt. Mm -hmm. So he kills the guy with the shirt he's going to (laughs) wear. It's like, Okay. Yeah, I and when I read that, I was like, maybe that was like a getaway outfit. Didn't he escape from like prison or something right at the beginning of the story? Yeah, so it's like, give me the tropical shirt. (laughs) Heading to Florida. I think he was an interesting foil, though, in that sense. Like, he's supposed to be completely evil. And when the grandma's trying to appeal to his better nature somehow, it too feels like a hollow attempt somehow. Like, he feels more true to himself than she does to herself in that moment. She's like, I'm a man of God. And then she can't remember the words to pray. And obviously, she's stressed out. But he's over here like, no, I'm still going to kill you. And you're like, well, he's sticking to his guns at least. <laughs> yeah. I didn't like the grandma. She was like entertaining, but then. Yeah, that's an interesting. I don't think we're meant to. I wouldn't. No. Like we were talking about, she's manipulative and doesn't seem yeah. like a, that great of a person in that respect. That's another thing that I think it attaches it to the Greek kind of Greek tragedy is that it's like a comeuppance, you know? Yeah, right. Their personality is part of her flaw, and that everything right. she does drives her to this end. Yeah, she's supposed to be an example for us of like what not to do. Something like that, yeah. So like the name of the story comes from that scene in the diner. And if I wasn't like a short story writer, I would read this story and that would be like the scene that I'd forget, you know? If you were summarizing this to a friend, you wouldn't mention the part that they stop and have this conversation about a good man is hard to find. But that's obviously one of those scenes that you read and it's a signal to the reader, right? It's this like heavy handed thing that the writer is doing. Like, I don't need to do this detour, but I'm going to. And like, what should you take away from it 
I guess my conclusion afterwards is not just that the misfit's going to be a really bad guy that, you know, you're not going to be able to reason with. It's also that everyone in this story is annoying. (laughs) It's true. Like, none of these people are good people. When they have this conversation at the diner, they're, like, saying it about everyone else, right? They're like, you can't find any good people anymore. We're the good ones. But like we said, the grandma's real manipulative. The dad's kind of like angry. And the mom's kind of just like fly on the wall. And the kids, I also want to shoot. <laughs> kids won't shut up. Yeah. So I understood that part. But um, yeah, that part in the diner felt on the surface and the title, it could be a takeaway where it's like, people just want aren't, aren't what they used to be. But I think like my deeper reading is kind of like, yeah, everyone sucks. <laughs> I love in that scene at the diner, the guy they're talking to, he comes out and sat down at a table nearby and let out a combination sigh and yodel. I love that description. I can hear it. I hate it. Yeah. Like if he was a coworker, he'd, he would be doing a combination sigh and yodel like three times a day. Yeah. It's like, okay, you want attention. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, Jim. <laughs> Yeah, the scene in the diner, though, I think is a good illustration of, like, what Flannery O'Connor's doing throughout the story with, like, this cast of strangers, basically. Like, we don't have a lot of time to, like, get to know any of these characters, like, except for the grandma. And there's always a ton of people on the page and in every scene. And um, it feels real that way. I think we talked about this in our workshop recently when we were talking about dialogue and how dialogue between two people, when you can do it well, you can do it really well, it's great, whatever, it reads fast. But, like, dialogue with a third person person we don't always do and dialogue for extended periods with like a fourth person like we don't really do and then when you get literally at the end three murderers and six family members all in the same scene and then to be able to see it and to understand who's who by then you know who the mom and the dad are where the kids fall in the lineup and like to picture even like the sidekicks and the misfit like she's doing something like really expertly there and so like even the the diner scene you can picture right like this busload of a family unloading at a diner and trying to have a nice meal and then like a stranger being like and striking up a conversation i liked seeing all that interaction yeah that's true i hadn't thought of that that's everyone does get their own voice in their dialogue i mean maybe the kids are very similar but you can tell by the end who's speaking yeah i mean the misfit does most of the speaking but the other two guys pipe up too the mother doesn't talk at all. What is she? Oh, she has that one thing she says. He's like, we want you to, after they've shot the, the boy and the father. Yeah. You're like, do you want to go in the woods with your daughter now? And she's like, sure. Yeah, she's like, okay. <laughs> oh, she says, yes, thank you. Uh, I mean, even though I didn't like any of these people, that final scene is just like, it's horrific, right? Like, you know what's about to happen. And for as little as they kind of struggle, I mean, they put up like no resistance, right? There's not like a fight. There's no like attempt other than the grandma. They just, they literally march themselves to their death. And that that was like so messed up. And then you, you try to think about like what they could have done. And it's like, not much when there's three men with guns and, you know, you have two kids and an infant. It was gross. It was messed up. Yeah. And for for a woman to be writing this in her time is, ooh, edgy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was an interesting writer. I know everything you ever read about this story talks about the thing where she reached out and touched him on the shoulder. Misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. Oh, I just read that wrong. I read it, read it as if the snake had shot her three times through the chest. <laughs> uh, the misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. Then he put his gun down on the ground and took off his glasses and began to clean them. 
the fact that she touches him at the end and then he like recoils and shoots her has probably been written about in every piece of criticism that's ever been penned about this story. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we need to say anything about it. I know. I had to like read criticism about the story afterwards to be like, how far off am I about <laughs> like the overall point of this? And I was like, all right, yeah, pretty far off. Uh, y'all can read that later. As a writer, I think I think of that as like a character moment. It's like she touched him is like a character thing and him recoiling is like a character thing. I mean, you can probably pull some deeper literary meaning out of it, but. Yeah, that's what I don't care about. But I did read, like, basically what I was reading was that, you know, this is like a good versus evil thing and the grandma views herself as good and misfits evil and he recoils because it's like good touching evil. But to everything we said, the grandma's not so good. She's just a little self-righteous. This is the kind of story that reminds me of like how good and enjoyable a 13 page little suspense piece can be. Like we said, we set out knowing what's probably going to happen. We don't know how it'll actually unfold, but it's exciting to read. She says from the get go, there's a serial killer on the loose and the family's going to probably run into them. And then like, you're still like flipping through like what? And then still horrified. And there doesn't have to be for me in a story like this, like a deeper literary moment for me to have like thoroughly enjoyed it and remembered it for how Flannery wrote it. Yeah, I read it before, obviously, and I had that same feeling of, like, page turning, you know? I knew it was going to happen. Yeah. I forgot they stopped the gas station, but it's like, you know, that doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. But the ending, I knew exactly how that played out, but I was still, like, edge of my seat. It's really well written. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Which you mentioned, you kind of touched on this before with the, it's a really strange point of view that's taken. It's it's omniscient. It's mostly in the grandmother's thoughts, but every once in like it shifted. And what I read, there was a moment where it was in the, the father's sensations. He's getting yeah, killed in the, the kidneys. kidneys. Yeah. And then she dies. Yeah. And it's not in her point of view anymore, but it just goes on. It's really strange. Um, is not strange, but interesting uh, point of view. Yeah, it's one of those things where you would never tell a, a new writer to attempt that, or even like an experienced writer, that they should write a story that slides into different people's consciousness. But I think this is a really good example of when it can be done in a way that like some people might think is like breaking the rules, right? Yeah. It's like, no, this is, this is natural and it works. And you mentioned before how it's like close in her thoughts in one point, but then it pulls back from her. I feel like throughout, it like psychic distances, it shifts a lot. It pulls close every once in a while, but most of the time the psychic distance is distant. We don't get into people's thoughts. We get like glimpses of their thoughts, but we don't get, it's not like we're trapped in the grandmother's thoughts and like while she's like pondering all these things and regrets in her life and all this stuff right at the end she's gonna be killed it's just all surface with what she says and what she does yeah and and um it changes point of view i feel like or it changes like the individual when that individual is about to like make a decision like it's in it's in her head when she's like telling them where the house is right yeah but then it's it's in the dad's head when he gets kicked in the kidney and he's like all right let's turn that's true that's good yeah So it's not like it's willy-nilly. That's why I wouldn't tell someone to try it. That's right. Because you need to know like when something is best told that way. Which reminds me of like a journalism thing, which is like to use direct quotes unless you can say it better. So you wouldn't have the mayor saying, we'll meet again next week for a regularly scheduled meeting. You would never put that in direct quotes. No. (laughs) You know, you don't have to just quote someone just because they said it. You can paraphrase when you can say it better. So you have to like pick and choose all the time with that in mind. Like, 
can I do this better this way? Or should I just say it? Or should I let this person say it? Not a direct example, but but I think we like subconsciously and consciously make decisions like that all the time. And it's based on something. It's not like we're just deciding. It's like, we know I'm going to slide into this perspective now, but you have to think about why you did it kind of after the fact to know whether or not you did it right or like what needs to change. Should we talk about takeaways or is there anything else that you'd like to mention about this? I mean, I could go through here and just pull lines and stuff, but yeah, takeaways is probably good. Do you have one off the top of your head? Yeah. I mean, I don't have a big deal takeaway. I guess I really like Greek literature. I've talked about the epics before on the podcast and Greek tragedies. And so uh, just the idea of shaping something the way a, a Greek tragedy is shaped is kind of cool. Yeah. And, you know, we think of the Greeks as being 2,500 years ago writing this, and it's just a totally different world. But at bottom, it's all about the character, this grandmother, this story is all about the grandmother. And it's always going to be come back to who the person is and the decisions they make and how, for the Greeks, fate intervenes in that. It's like she can't escape her fate. She can't escape who she is. And it's it's a really cool uh, thing to do that in a modern way to try to write in the Greek tradition. Maybe that's why I don't like Greek mythology, because it is just kind of like the, this inevitable thing. Oh, yeah. Like they're boring to read. The stories are interesting, but like I just remember like it was a drag for me to read that stuff. And maybe it's because you just kind of know like that it is going somewhere. Oh, there's a uh, I forget. I think it was um, Euripides's Orestes story. You know, these stories are written. They they all have to play out the same way. You know, Sophocles' Oedipus is going to play out the same way as Euripides' Oedipus because it's the, st- the story is the story, and all everyone knew them. It was just a different take on the same story. So that's what makes them interesting. But so he was writing an Orestes story. And as I'm reading it, he's going mad, the character Orestes. And the house is burning down around him and everything's falling apart. And all of a sudden, Apollo shows up and says, all right, I'm going to fix it. And we're going to go back to normal. I'm going to cure your madness and uh, you're going to be fine. And this was this is the problem with the... Greek literature is that deus ex machina. And that's where we get the phrase because it came from a feature of the theater is where they'd have this machine on which they would bring gods onto the stage, like a character, uh, actor playing a god, and they'd be strapped into the machine to be lowered down. And the it was literally a god out of a machine onto stage to fix everything. And that play really showed the problems with that device so strongly. So there's a lot of issues with the Greek literature for modern readers, but I think this is a good translation of it and of the form into our expectations. Right. Yeah. Because I think to your point, these characters are making decisions, but we don't have to understand that it might be their fate one way or the other to end up this way. They feel modern in the sense that they do have agency and that there's not some God being lowered in to throw a wrench out of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. They feel like they're bringing it unto themselves. Very modern. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess my t- I have two takeaways. One takeaway is something I've said before, which is like, and I need to remember to do this. That's why I'm going to repeat it, is to like, try to add more characters, either to a story overall or to a scene. When I write something short, I always think to myself that it has to be contained when it comes to like, you know, scope, page length, how much time I'm going to cover, how many characters I'm really going to have, how many settings there's really going to be. And I don't always do that consciously, but I find that like, especially when I'm writing like under the wire, I'm like, well, I'll have one more scene in one more place. You know, it's too (laughs) late to introduce this character because I have to have this done. So to think in terms of like a grander scale, almost like a novel, but to like put it into a short story, like you can have nine characters in a scene. That is like mind blowing to me. I don't think I've ever done that. 
And then my other point is just uh, this is enjoyable because I think it is just a standard kind of gripping story and the device is maybe foreshadowing, but the plot is one that like I would read over and over again, like show me a murder. I mean, I don't feel like I read good murders. I feel like, I don't know, just show me just a straight up murder. I think it could be good. People like to read that stuff. That's what makes it feel like a page turner. Mortal danger. (laughs) Yeah. When you read like a novel about a murder mystery, it's almost like... Like the murder happens and then the story is really like how they get the guy. Whatever, I don't care. This one just ends like with the gore and it's like a short story. It just like dips out. There's no like solving it. It's just like, this is what you came for. Yeah, we all know who did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this, this just like was pure enjoyment for me. It wasn't like heavy lifting. I, w- I wasn't having to like think real hard. I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh man. Yeah. Good. And so much has been written about it, you know, in literary criticisms that you can... It can be that simple and yet still say something. Right. Yeah. For the critics that have to have it say something, go for (laughs) it. But I was able to enjoy it. So take that. Good job, Flannery. (laughs) Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.